Okay, salam alaikum everyone. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Okay, last entry. Okay, you got it. All right, salam alaikum everybody. We're just getting started. Um, well, let me be the first to hopefully um, like say Ayid Mubarak. I can't believe we are down to the last couple of days of Ramadan. It's really sad and bittersweet. Um, I, every Ramadan seems to go faster and faster, but um, I hope that everyone had a really beautiful and blessed month and that um, you were able to spend a lot of time in, in reflection and transformation and that you spent a lot of time with us. Um, it, it's been really lovely. This has actually been one of the most um, beautiful um, Ramadans that we've spent being here in this community um, and for us, I, if you know, I, I wrote early on in my weekly email that um, Ramadan has always been very lonely for us, and I feel like um, this was a very, very special time, um, you know, gathering and learning about the Quran. Um, maybe one of the gifts was that we really were able to um, experience just a, a Ramadan that was not lonely and very, very beautiful. And so I want to thank everyone who's been part of our community, joining us on halakas, um, joining us at khutbahs, um, just everything. It's like very exciting because um, I feel like we had a lot of growth this this um, this month. Um, that was also seen because this um, Sunday we had a fabulous um, webinar conversation um, between Dr. Bukhudal and Tarek Suidan. Um, and it was, if you didn't um, catch it when it was live, it, the recording is actually um, up on YouTube and you can find it there. It was a two hour conversation. Um, it was really exciting because we, when we um, shared it with people, we had like over 300 people that registered for the webinar. Um, and I know I've gotten a lot of really incredible response. So these are all things that um, are really hopeful and I think, um, and if you didn't watch the conversation um, with, with Dr. Tarit, um, he was himself just an amazing example um, of what one person can accomplish. And he had really powerful, um, you know, messages of hope for us and for the future. And I think that a lot of times when we come together in this space, we lament the state of Muslims and, you know, the situation in the world. And he was able to put some of that in context for us where we understand, you know, things are cyclical and just because we're, we're you know, down at the bottom, it doesn't mean that things are not going to change, um, as is the course of history. Things go up and they go down. And he actually said that we have now begin, uh, begun our, our ascent from rock bottom. So I guess we're still pretty down down there. But the good news is that, you know, we're, you know, he felt um, with his experience and his experience is vast and his analytical um, you know, prowess is incredible. He felt that, that things are, are going to change and he's hopeful with the young leaders that he has trained and he's trained um, thousands of people um, and he feels very hopeful seeing the, the young generation coming forward um, as being a different class of, of people who can make change happen. So um, inshallah, I also hope that the work that we're doing here is is going to contribute to that and he had very positive things to say about Usuli. So if you haven't had a chance to watch it, please do. Um, it was a really, really enlightening and wonderful conversation. Um, so, you know, with, um, with things being as, I mean, on the, on the note of things being dark, I mean, I know that everyone here is, is probably following what's happening in Palestine, and I know we need to um, pray and um, just keep our thoughts and, you know, uh, for our brothers and sisters who are suffering there and experiencing unbelievable um, it just it's it's I don't even have words for the pain and the suffering and the the injustice the ugliness the the sheer evil that is taking place um, so let us pray that 
God will give them some relief and, and that there's something that we can do um, in, within our midst to, to make some change. So um, anyway, I uh, very quickly, um, I, was, I had promised that I would give a little bit of, of book history. I actually was happy to finally come across The Great Theft. I was complaining last time I couldn't find a copy. And um, this was the book that was written um, you know, right after 9-11 to um, explain what is the difference between an extremist and a moderate Muslim, which were terms that were kicked around at that time. So the little secret that I'll tell you about this book is that, um, you know, sometimes you have to write things um, in a sort of hopeful, aspirational way um, that are not necessarily reflective of the reality of things. Um, and so this is one of those books that I sort of have privy to understand that that, that was kind of how this book was written. And this is very much, in fact, um, Dr. Abelfuddle's School of Thought. I mean, this book, if you look at, um, on the cover, the Associate Press um, has a little quote, the most dramatic manifesto from an American Muslim since the September 11 attacks. And this is a really powerful, um, you know, view. And it's important for us as a Suli to understand that, you know, this is when we talk about moderate Muslims, you know, this is kind of how Dr. Abelfuddle would articulate it in his School of Thought. Um, and just to give you an idea of what's in this book, I thought I would share with you um, just the table of contents really quickly. Um, so as I mentioned before, it's in two parts. The first part of the book is history, um, and the chapters are Islam torn between extremism and moderation, the roots of the problem, the rise of the early Puritans, and the story of contemporary Puritans. So it really gives you a sense of um, how we got to where we are, you know, the rise of Wahhabism. Of course, Wahhabism has morphed since then, um, but this was uh, really important, a really important history that a lot of Muslims, I think, were not aware of. Um, and then part two is, um, as I mentioned, um, it's called Charting the Moderate versus Puritan Divide, and it's where he would go into theology and practice and say this is what, um, you know, where Muslims are on this continuum of extremism um, to moderation. And he starts that chapter with what all Muslims agree upon, so we know where the starting point is, and then he talks about God and the purpose of creation, the nature of law and morality, approaches to history and modernity, democracy and human rights, interacting with non-Muslims and salvation, jihad, warfare, and terrorism, and the nature and role of women. So you see he covers a lot of ground. Um, a lot of times people don't actually even, you know, get to the book and open the table of contents, but I just wanted to point out, you know, he covers a lot that is really important for us, um, you know, as Muslims to just start the process of educating ourselves and getting past kind of, you know, the reactionary um, things that people have on social media. Um, you, you feel like a lot of times the younger generation doesn't remember what it is to read books, so um, don't be scared, and it comes in Kindle version too. Um, so, and then I thought I also came across this beautiful um, artifact. This is the first version of Conference of the Books I talked about previously. Um, so this was the one that we published um, through on, on our, our own through the imprint that um, it's an academic imprint and so you know we did the cover design and you know all of the stuff that went with it it's a really gorgeous book and you know we took some of the, the visuals and um, you know and I don't actually have the other one but the, the same graphic was used um, for the second version and I've noticed that some books have also stolen this graphic for other books too so you might see it out there but um, anyway so there's no greater 
um, compliment than imitation, right? <laughs> so anyway, um, so that's a little bit of book history. So anyway, if you haven't had a chance to read this, or if you have friends that are interested in Islam, you know, we get a lot of questions from people like, oh, I have a friend who really wants to learn um, where is a good book to start. This is a great one because it's very straightforward about, you know, what Islam is and these different, you know, um, areas that people often have questions about. So I would highly, highly recommend that. So, um, Looking forward to another um, amazing session to continue, Surah Al-Rad, and thank you for joining us. Ayyid Mubarak, everybody, and inshallah we will see you, um, well, I'll, I'll say goodbye at the end. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay, so inshallah today we will continue with Surah Ra'd and uh, inshallah finish it for uh, it's a good thing that we we uh, did not attempt to finish Surah Ra'd uh, the last session because I discovered later on that I had forgot to um, talk about um, verse number 15 which is quite critical for the surah and it would have been um, it would have been difficult if I would have discovered that I forgot to do that you know, sometime around midnight. Um, and rather just rather than just pick up from where I left, what I'm going to do is that I'm going to try to uh, paraphrase what, what I've done already and as well as advance the analysis uh, for Surat al So, and I'm going to try to avoid uh, repetition uh, from the last halakha, obviously, to the extent possible. All right, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Rad, we notice right away that it is a surah that is heavily anchored in pointing our attention to a Qur'anic county, as we, we've said, uh, the created Qur'an. Um, although the concept of the written Qur'an and the created Qur'an is a later development as, as a category, meaning that Muslim theologians articulated the concept later. But this is at the heart of the creation of the concept itself. And that the surah begins with pointing our attention to the 
the, the intricate balance in creation itself, the raising of the heavens without pillars, that everything is measured to um, serve life on earth and that the nature of creation, the nature of this universe that Allah created is that it is not wasteful and it's not um, corruptful, it does not cause corruption but is in fact measured to perform uh, a function that can only be described as anchored in life-giving and in goodness. And in this context, then, Surah Al-Rad introduces us to this notion of duality and Zawjain, Ithnain, and as we said last time that it, it doesn't necessarily mean that there is there's always female and male or that there is um, uh, uh, it, 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 for the purposes of procreation but rather that there is something and its opposite um, for the very nature of existence itself so that even plants that procreate plants that have sort of the female and male uh, organs in the same plant that they functioned like a positive and negative and as we said that there is uh, you know part of the plant is underground part of the plant is above ground um, but it doesn't that notion of duality just doesn't stop there um, and this is something that I, I didn't focus on last time I think it simply um, forgot it is not just as we said bitterness versus sweetness or darkness versus light or uh, what not um, but even we and I'll, I'll, I'll develop this a little bit a little further um, but even when it comes to the way that we approach values we have jude versus uh, generosity versus stinginess um, we have fujur versus an ifa we have ifa um, uh, is sort of uh, like um, modesty and being pure Fujur is exactly the opposite of that. Ijubn versus Shaja'a, cowardliness versus bravery, Zulm versus Al-Adl, injustice versus justice, and so on and so forth. And as we will see, 
in every situation, it is not that we are confronted with the ultimate moral question, but there, in, there is always these choices that are that within these choices are the very nature of the secret of creation itself or the the logic of creation the way that creation is organized and made to function okay and then we said that in surah al-rad that allah points to the natural miracle that although the substance of life is the same which the Quran points to as water, but the amount of diversity that emerges from that same basic substance is remarkable. And that reflecting upon the created Quran would allow you to see the harmony and synchronicity in creation that would require a remarkable amount of planning and purposeful organizing. But we also noted that the discourse of the Quran on water and creation in Sufi-esque tradition, water is often taken as symbolic of something else. Uh, I'm not going to re repeat the, the um, um, the material that I said in last time, but uh, I'll introduce a new one that I forgot. Um, And that is some very interesting discourses on what they call that there is a duality also in that it is as if water itself acts like the agent that pollinates earth for life to exist. And in the in the works of some of the Sufi asks the Fasir, they talk about water is like uh, the father figure and the earth is like the mother figure if you've ever uh, and that uh, they go beyond that and then they say that the Quran itself the water is symbolic for Quran and that the Quran itself is the secret elixir that is required to inject life in the spirits and hearts and intellects of beings. And so in, in Sufi Astafasir, you have some, some very beautiful writing about the properties of the Quran that are similar to the properties of water and the way that the Quran flows and, and penetrates 
through things to bring life and goodness to the forefront. And as we talked about last time, that the image of water filling streams and producing froth is also an important part of this imagery um, because in this imagery the froth if the Quran is like the water the froth is all the human speculations and anxieties and nervous energy that doesn't come from um, a, a a systematic heartfelt engagement with the Quran but that are reactions to various human weaknesses now critical to the entire message of surah al-rad is that the quranic discourse on water and froth as the quran says that water flows feeding life and what is good remains but the frost always blows up or always rises to the surface and the frost eventually goes away and what is good remains the problem though is that the frost is immediate and often the result of turbulence and it is what you see at the very top and the very surface and this is critical to the message of surah al-rad because surah al-rad's message is about the nature of islamic change that Islamic change is not instantaneous, it is not overnight, it is not about generating froth, it is not about dazzles and glitter, or dazzle and glitter. It is very much the very logic of creation in which you have water feeding the earth and to spark an incremental long process that then ends in fruit. And we've touched upon this before, that, that imagery in another surah. But the, it takes a process that a, a healthy process for 
fruit to be produced in the same way that it takes an entire process for water to remain on earth and for goodness that water brings to remain on earth while the frost evaporates. And then, as we said, that begs then the question of, well, what are the rules or what can be done or should be done in order for this incremental progressive process of Islamic change to take place for the water to produce the goodness that it is supposed to produce or if water is the Quran for the Quran to produce the goodness that it's supposed to produce for things to bear fruit in other words what are the rules for an Islamic engagement that generates this process and as we said in the last halakha that we get these rules laid out um, it starts around verse 20 and First among these is honoring your covenant. Al-Mufuna bi'ahdillah or yufuna bi'ahdillah as the as Surah Al-Rad says. Wala yankhuduna al-mithaq that you honor God's covenant and honor your word, honor your trust. People who are unreliable or untrustworthy or who break their promises are out of the game. They're going to produce frost. And as we said, that you must be the type of people that connect what Allah ordered to be connected, not severed. And we said, what are the things that Allah ordered to be connected? And as we said last Hanukkah, the examples we, we gave that even cruelty to a chicken would be severing what God ordered to be connected. Leave alone relationships to parents, relationships to neighbors, relationships to um, treating other human beings kindly and justly and so on. And Beyond these two, then we had Surah Al-Rad mentioned perseverance and patience, prayer, which is classic, classically always coupled with infaq, was spending in God's way. And Surah Al-Rad presents us with another one that doesn't get enough theological attention, especially among modern Muslims, and that is dar 
repelling evil with goodness. That we're not talking about law and we're not talking about criminal penalties. And this is where a lot of people get confused when they, when they fail to understand each surah in its proper historical place. Surah Turan is about the creation, if you will, of an Islamic movement, the birthing of an Islamic reality. It is not about the running of an Islamic legal order. So while in law, we often talk about that if there is harm, there has to be in response to that harm that is anchored in a punitive model. That's what we do in law. But for Islamic goodness, for you to create an Islamic civilizational project, these are the building blocks. And the building blocks cannot be, among the, the building blocks is, you cannot rely on the logic of vengeance. Because vengeance will only generate an ample ugliness. When you have ugliness responded to as ugliness, you only get ugliness. Okay. Now, something that I did not talk about last halakha though is that in Surah Rad, because I, I, towards the end I, I felt rushed and I overlooked it. Um, Note that in Surah Turan, Allah speaks about sending lightning and thunder. And we, we did talk about that in, Su in the Sufi S tradition, when Allah talks about lightning and thunder, a lot of the Sufi S tradition takes this as a metaphor, lightning is a metaphor for the, the, the intensity of engagement that you could have with the divine, the thunder for the unsettling consequences, and then what follows the, the thunder um, uh, is the process of growing into the divine. And that's, we, we've, met, we've talked about that. But the imagery of lightning and thunder, notice that what follows lightning and thunder is rain. And in my view, 
in my engagement with Surah Al-Ra'd, what I take what Surah Al-Ra'd is saying about lightning and thunder is look beyond the lightning and thunder. That the lightning comes, it's, it's impressive. It generates fear. It generates, you know, the dazzle effect. You see the lightning. The lightning might even strike someone. In other words, the lightning are these, you know, intense acts of high energy, like rioting, like violence, like clashes, like whatever. And thunder, again, acts that are extremely unsettling. But that's not the issue. The issue is what happens after the lightning and thunder. What are you going to do with the rain falling afterwards? If you are unable to channel that rain into riverbeds that bring actual growth, then the project is a failure. Because so many people, when they think of change, they don't think beyond lightning and thunder. They think about, you know, you induce the, 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 the shock act, the act where you, 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 you spark a bit of change through shock value. But what comes afterwards? Which, in, very interestingly, we, we had the, uh, the halakha on Saturday and then the conversation with Tarek Swedan on Sunday, and it, it overlapped with something that Tarek Swedan that, uh, said that caught my attention. Uh, and at one point in his talk, he was saying about the, talking about the equation for change. And part of his equation is he, one of the, the, um, the elements of his equation was plans for the future. I forgot how he put it, but it, it, it was, that's, and this it overlaps quite remarkably with Surat Rad, or at least my understanding of Surat Rad, because Surat Rad is always, was, you know, with all due respect to the Sufi-esque tafsir or the Sufi-esque approaches, Surah Al-Rad from the very beginning is, is talking to you about the created Qur'an. And the created Qur'an teaches us about Allah's Sunnah in creation. And Allah's Sunnah is telling us about how we can nurture goodness within and without. And the theme in Surah Al-Rad that is persistent is how meticulously incremental the process of change is and how that you must always be able to look beyond the froth. If you are about the froth, and nothing but the froth, 
if you're about appearances, about optics, we'll, we'll, you will never go anywhere. Because it's not about optics, it's about values. So if you produce the right optics, but your values are values that sever what God ordered to be connected. So in other words, in, in according to Qadi Ayyad, if you have the right optics, but you are cruel to the chicken. Because remember, if Qadi Ayyad said that a person who is muhsin in everything, but is cruel to a single chicken, this person is no longer a muhsin, is no longer a good human being. And what Qadi Ayyad is, is saying is, he's, of course, he's extracting it from a whole tradition like that. It is about values and the way values work. Values are indivisible. So having patience is necessary for prayer. But spending in God's way is necessary for prayer, and prayer is necessary for spending in God's way. It's, it's all interlinked that if you start breaking these values apart, the entire edifice falls. And I've always been struck by the, the, the entire discourse about the lightning and thunder and then the way that the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that, you know, and from this lightning and thunder, it's the rain that falls that starts flowing in riverbeds. And I think to myself, the lightning and thunder is so quick, but the rain that falls, that starts flowing in riverbeds, and the riverbeds start feeding the land, and the land starts growing vegetation and vegetation eventually produces thimar or fruit that's a long protracted process and if I am completely focused on the lightning and thunder so if for instance I am exhilarated by the lightning but I'm unable to concentrate on capitalizing on the on the water that falls or if I'm terrified by the thunder and I run away and I'm unable to capitalize on the water that falls all is lost okay now I want to take you back then to verse 15. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that the lightning and thunder supplicates Allah's name. Yusabbih. And we said last halaqa that Yusabbih is anything that does tanzih, anything that 
ينزه الله anything that testifies to the oneness of God and the power of God is tasbih tasbih doesn't have to be purposeful it's tasbih has any act of tanzih but then when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says in 15 وَلِلَّهِ يَسْجُدُ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ طَوْعًا وَكَرْهًا وَظِلَالُهُمْ بِالْغُدُوِّ وَالْآصَالِ Everything in the heavens and earth prostates before Allah whether willingly or unwillingly. وَظِلَالُهُمْ and their shadows. And their shadows in the morning and evenings. Okay. So, what is the significance of this and how is this? On the one hand, if we can understand prostration, the, the, the heavens and earth prostrating to Allah, that as the verse says, whether willingly or unwillingly, so on and at one level we can understand this as saying that whether willingly or unwillingly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is supreme and sovereign and that it is as if Allah is saying if Allah would have willed everyone would prostrate to Allah and this is in fact how the traditional Tafsir understand this verse. As you probably would guess, in Sufi Ask Tafsir, this takes a a much um, there is a much larger engagement with this concept. In Sufi Astafasir, they often talk about that sujood, there's a sajid bi nafsihi wa sajid bi qalbi. That sujood is not all sujood is the same. And that sujood itself means the literal meaning of sujood is to bend so if you say sajadat al-nakhla if which is in was an expression used before the quran then the the palm tree sajadat did sujood it doesn't mean you're saying the palm tree actually prostrated before prostrated it means that the palm tree bent because of wind or whatever and so, 
in that sense, it is Allah saying, everything in the heavens and earth yields to the will of Allah, whether it wills to do so or not. And then in the Sufi tradition, they often talk about that when willful sujood is either a sujood bilwajd that you the prostration is not bending just your body but the much more difficult thing to do and that is to bend your soul because you're bending something that is non-material and that the bending of the ethereal, the non-material, is much more difficult than bending the material. That's easy to bend the material. So in the Sufi tradition, they first say, okay, you know, is, is it voluntary, bend, voluntary bending, prostrating or not? But second, is it prostrating the ethereal or prostrating the... Uh, material and if it's prostrating the material that's only the 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 uh, uh, most superficial level they tie this they tie this most frequently, this whole issue of the nature of prostration to the nature of dhikr itself. And although you, you do get different divisions in different texts and, and depending on what precisely you're looking at, but, but overall, Overall, um, here's the, the, the types of dhikr that they talk to in relation to the type of prostration. So, their dhikr nafs. nafs is where you repeat with your tongue and you think of the blessings that you've been given so that prevailing feeling you have is gratitude. This is step one in prostrating the ethereal. Now, someone will say, well, what if I'm doing dhikr and I'm repeating, but I'm not thinking of the blessings? Then it's, you'd say you're out of the game of prostrating the ethereal. You're only going to prostrate your body. Leave alone, of course, if you are thinking of, you know, prestige or attention or competition or, you know, all the types of things that people think of. That, um, but the very first stage is to, to actually be able to do dhikr and think of gratitude. The second is dhikr qalb. 
and they often say at-tafakkur fil malakut wa mutalat sifat al-jamal or sifat al-jalal that now you're doing dhikr but you are thinking of the malakut the malakut the 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 realm of the divine and you are focused on understanding the sifat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the the um, the beautific sifat or characteristics of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so here you are not you have gone beyond the self in gratitude to focus on al-wajd the nature of your lord Third is Dhikr sir where having gone beyond gratitude for the self, for what you get personally, to reflecting upon the sifat of your Lord, the beauty of your Lord, and, tr- and in fact, you are journeying towards understanding Allah as Allah, not Allah as a reflection of you. Then you are in a state of munaja where you actually get to the point where you are speaking to Allah, but you are not speaking to the self. Because a lot of us, when we think we're speaking to Allah, we're actually speaking to ourselves. But you can't speak to Allah unless you understand something about Allah. And that is where the dhikr that is focused on the sifatullah, like the, the, the short dhikr that I did yesterday with you guys, for instance. Then, dhikr al-ruh which they, in Sufi, in the Sufi tradition, they call it Dhikr al-Mushahada, where you actually, through your Dhikr, you are able to see something of the signs of divinity directly. You, you, a proper Sufi will never describe to you what they see. They will only tell you that you have to experience it yourself. And then most Sufi texts will mention a final stage, and that's Zikr al-Fana. And that is the Zikr of, that this is said to be only the most, the most pious are capable of it, where you actually, in your Zikr, you completely lose all sense of the self. You, you no longer feel your body. If someone came and in your state of Zikr and, you know, shot you. you, you wouldn't know that you were shot. Um, now, remember in Surah Al-Rad, one of the most powerful ayahs, Allah bi dhikrillahi it is with the remembrance of Allah that hearts are comforted. 
we've talked about this the last halakha. So here's a a um, some language, and don't don't ask me where I got it from because I, I found it in some old old notebook, and I had scribbled it in really bad handwriting. I have no idea where I got it from. It says, "النفس تطرب بظهور صفاتها وأحاديثها." وتطيش بذلك فيتلون قلب فيتلون قلب ويتغير ويهتم بأحاديثها فيثقل ويضيع فإذا ذكر الله ذكرا حسنا بذكر القلب وذكر السر استقرت النفس وانتفت وانتفت الوساوس so he's saying is that the self is often burdened and weighed down by its own characteristics. Ahadithiha, its own obsessive narratives. You are constantly talking to yourself, but what you're constantly telling yourself most of the time is nonsense. It's like, uh, you you swim in 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 an ocean of anxieties, obsessions, fears, uh, delusions. And because of that, the heart is constantly poisoned. And because the heart is constantly poisoned, the heart is also constantly lost. But only when you learn to do proper zikr do you learn to silence or to separate from your sifat, from your own characteristics, your own personality faults. It's like you abandon your own characteristics and go to sifatillah, to the the characteristics of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you silence your own narratives to listen because the voice of God can never be heard as long as your voice speaks louder. So this is just, a, a, it's, it, I mean, this is all just a taste of all that's generated around that it is in traditional tafsir they all say well you know if you're pious if you think of Allah then you feel better okay 
but Sufiyat Tafasir will take it beyond. Now, having said all of that, now let's go back again to Go back again to um, verse 15. Okay. So all of this is fine. So we understand everything in the heavens and in the earth prostrates before Allah whether willingly or not we understand what prostration mean we understand something about the how the Sufis the Fasir talk about prostration and that a lot of people who prostrate voluntarily are only prostrating physically but not prostrating their, their their ethereal soul or the prostration of energy if you will which is much harder uh, however you notice in verse 15 is that mention of shadows that they prostrate and their shadows prostrate and this has caused a tremendous amount of pause and discussion in the Islamic tradition. Why the mention of shadows? What is the significance of saying everything in the heavens and earth and their shadows? And in the traditional tefasir, they will often say something like, well, um, it means that if you are prostrating willingly, your shadow prostrates willingly. If you're not prostrating willingly, your shadow is not prostrating willingly. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. It doesn't take us very far, right? In Sufi Astafasir, there's a lot of um, a, a lot of discussion about what, why shadows, and whether, in fact, this is a reference to um, another, if you will. Um, force or but I will it's in part inspired by the Sufi-esque approaches but it's also I have to say mostly inspired by my own journey with the Quran remember that in this surah we already said that the Quran constantly talks about dualities in things. And I 
I think I mentioned to you before once that And we, in this surah also, before I get to that, we, we, we have, we talked about the mu'aqibat, that, 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 that word that, that the Qur'an uses, that there are mu'aqibat behind you and for, ahead of you, and we said that in the traditional tafsir there is a discussion about whether the mu'aqibat are angels, whether there are your traces, the, your legacy, your footsteps that you, you leave, that's all was in the past halakha, right? But ma'akibat also, as we said, can be something that accompanies you. It stays with you. And here we have a mention of shadow. If you imagine that for every act there is a reaction, for every positive there is a negative, the very nature of goodness and bad is defined by the presence of something and its opposite. So. And again, this gets into the philosophy of, of goodness and bad, but in, in essence, that what do we need for cruelty to exist? An absence of mercy, as simple as that. What do we need for injustice to exist? The absence of justice. What do we need for ugliness to exist? The absence of beauty. I have become convinced that all things, all living things, have a shadow, but not a shadow in, in the sense of what light comes from the sun that is blocked. But a shadow of the energy, of the duality, of the alternative, of what is. So, you know, maybe just to bring it closer, you know the the, the German expression double, what is it, double ganger? Yeah. It, it is. If I raise my, my, my hand like this, there is, there is if you, the, the other side of raising the hand, what, whatever it, it is, if, I, if you make any decision in life, so if you decide, okay, I'm going to open this book and read it, there's alternative decision instantaneously of not opening the book and not reading it. There is evidence that that energy of 
the negative of what we are, or the negative of what animals are, even anything that has energy, um, can survive us for a period of time, can exist. I'm not saying it's conscious, but it, it just as a, as a... If you are good, your shadow is bad. If you are bad, your shadow is good. It is exactly the opposite of what is. And it is consistent with the logic of duality. The above earth and below earth, the dark and the light, the, the, the constant balancing of things. As some philosophers put it, that on a spectrum of things, it's like, take Khalid. Khalid is, could possibly be from zero to 180. And Khalid in his lifetime moves at that spectrum. But what defines the entire Khalid is the entire spectrum. And it is my choices upon moving along that spectrum is the way that I've navigated decisions in my life. Every time I make a choice that lands me at a spot of the spectrum, the alternative choice is the shadow. And I believe that's what, when Allah says that and their shadows, is simply saying that none of the choices are beyond Allah's sovereignty, beyond Allah's power. Do not think, now, in especially pre-modern times, the idea of a, although they, they tended to believe that, they, that what couples you um, as, is a jinn, that, that, and so some of them said, well, the shadow refers to the jinn that accompanies you from the time you're born, who at any time, and the whole idea of doppelganger is actually comes from that, is that that jinn that looks like you is you, but is the antithesis of you. But in, 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 in the old imagination, that jinn was always evil, while the person was always assumed to be better. I don't think there's evidence that there's a jinn that accompanies us from the point of birth. Um, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a whole discussion about the Qareen, but that's something else. The, the Qareen is a, is, is a complicated issue. But anyway. But I think it sustains, it sticks to, it's consistent with the logic of duality that we find throughout Surah Al-Rad and throughout, um, now there's another thing about this duality. And, and again, if you don't, you know, I'm, I'm not taking you in a philosophy lesson, so but I'm just going to put it out there and then... Uh, There's something that is remarkable about all choices in life. All choices in life 
whether good or bad, will further the interests of someone All choices of life, if in, in within a, a, a paradigm of scarcity, will always further the interests of someone at the expense of someone. All choices of life, all decisions, will tend to leave someone happy at the expense of someone being less happy. This is what's dangerous about defining morality without God, is that if it's simply, if, if you take God out of the equation, then whatever human beings are experiencing is doomed by the paradigm of relativity because human beings will always talk in terms of I'm better, I'm worse. It is only God that comes and can take us out of the hell of duality into the decisiveness of singularity. It is only God that can come and say, it's not about you got a bit better, you got a bit worse, but there is actually right and wrong. Look at the, the world we live in. Try to convince someone that the way that they use their body to the way that they commercialize their body. The hardest argument to make is, is to philosophically convince someone that commercializing their body is morally wrong. Because in terms of cost and benefit, they say, well, you know, if I prostitute myself, what does morality have to do with, that, with any of it? If it's consenting adults, what do you always get about the, the most the, the typical argument you get that sustains all moral relativity? It's consenting adults. Well, between consenting adults, what's the problem? It is always the cost of, well, who benefited some, who lost some. And as long as we're stuck with that, we are locked within that paradigm of relativity. It is only the intervening of a supreme third party that can take us to the point of absolute moral value, judgment. Anyway, but I think that Surah Al-Rad itself points our attention to that, that the, it is only the supremacy of Allah that takes us beyond the realm of froth and the world of froth to the world of actual life, living water and rivers.
Okay, and we see an affirmation of this when Allah says, you know, are the blind and seeing equal, and darkness and light, are they equal? And, you know, human beings can all have the infinite ability to... Um, within these dualities to say well you know what's light what's darkness it is it is only Allah that can get us to the point of absolute moral judgments anyway this is if as you as you go on um, You know, the, the question of what religion brings, um, this is in, very important to the whole, that whole idea and that whole issue. Anyway, okay, so, and right after that is when, right after verse 16 is when we get, Allah talks to us about the river flowing and the froth, this is verse 17, right? Um, and it's, notice, 18, when الَّذِينَ اسْتَجَابُوا لِرَبِّهِمُ الْحُسْنَى When Allah says, for those who answer the call of their Lord is a husna is goodness it's consistent exactly with what we've been saying it's 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 like you are not going to be able to even reach the paradigm of goodness unless you anchor it in a path to god okay what time is it Then last halakah we we talked about uh, when Surah Al-Rad then talks gets to the point of when the the Meccans or the unbelievers are telling the Prophet, well, how come you didn't have a you don't you, you don't bring us a miracle, and we've talked about the response to that and the importance of the response to that, but tie this into the moral or ethical message of Surah Al-Rad. Because if, if Surah Al-Rad, if the Quran was, or if Islam had no ethical message to deliver, then relying on miracles would be would be acceptable. I mean if it's simply positive laws and commandments, do or do not do, then you do a miracle, 
okay, you've got the point that this is a miracle. Okay, now do X or do Y. Exactly like the, the Allah dealt with the Israelites. Don't work on Saturdays. Why? Well, because I gave you a miracle. No, no rational reason, no logic, no philosophy. It is simply a positive command because you were presented with a miracle. Or when the miracle of the Immaculate Conception, uh, oh, sorry, the, 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 the miracle of uh, John's father uh, um, being able to have a child at such an old age. And he goes, you know, does Allah give me a, an ayah? And he says, that your, your, your ayah is don't talk to people. Why? What's the logic? Nothing. It is, it is a world based on command and obedience consistent with the paradigm of miracles. But once you have a Quran, a book of persuasion, Miracles are no longer valid because they don't transfer beyond the moment that people witness them. And now people need to understand fairly layered moral concepts like water flowing, froth disappearing, which is, I mean, it is not high philosophy but it's still philosophically sophisticated enough that you need the Qur'an, not a set of miracles, to convey that point. Okay. Now, look at 31. Now, Ayah 31 is fascinating, and I'll tell you why. Were there a Qur'an whereby the mountains were set in motion, or the earth was cleft, or the dead were made to speak? Nay, unto God belongs the affair altogether. Do not... Do not those who believe understand that if God would have willed, he would have guided mankind altogether. Yeah, okay. So, وَلَوْ أَنَّ قُرْآنًا سُيِّرَتْ بِهِ الْجِبَالُ أَوْ قُطِّعَتْ بِهِ الْأَرْضُ أَوْ كُلِّمَ بِهِ الْمَوْتَ بَلْ لِلَّهِ الْأَمْرُ جَمِيعًا So, but if there was a Quran that mountains were made to move or qutti'at bihal ard how did they translate this? Uh, or the earth were, were cliffed, was cliffed, the earth was was torn torn by that. Oh, oh, that spoke to the dead 
لو أن if there was okay no the first thing you notice is that it says if there was a Quran but it doesn't tell you the rest of it so if there was okay then what it simply says no it is all up to God but then if you're paying attention you'd say well, wait wait if there was a Quran that did all these things it would have been up to God so what am I missing here so and what does that mean a Quran that would have moved the mountains or tore the earth apart or spoke to the dead and then it says no no it is up it is all up to God now in traditional tefasir the way that they they read this is that they say well in basically Allah is telling the Meccans that you know if God would have willed you would have had all the miracles that you wanted and instead of a Quran that just speaks to you God would have moved mountains spoke to the dead did all these miraculous things but it's all up to God um, but it's all up to God um, and if God would have wished he, God would have guided everyone the only problem with the traditional tefasir is that God says plenty of times that if God would have willed God would have done X, Y, and Z but here God is saying if there was a Quran that would have done all these things so it doesn't seem to be saying that simple point that if God would have willed God would have moved the mountains and torn the earth and spoke to the dead but specifically a point is being made about the Quran itself And this, when you study it, it's saying something that Surah Al-Rad already tells us. Listen, the, the Quran is not there to move mountains or to speak to the dead or to tear the earth apart don't think that the quran is like hocus pocus magic it is not there for you to think that 
you're going to recite it, Allah is going to give you victory, and you are going to have a utopia, or you're going to have all the people believe. The way that the Quran works is very different than the way that miracles work. It is, you want to understand the way that the Quran works? Understand the way that water flows and feeds the land and grows its fruits. And the way that we get rid of froth. Remember what we said last halakha, when human beings interfere with water, there's even more froth. And sometimes a froth that is actually a pollutant, and then we need to actually remove the pollutant purposefully. We talked about this last halakha. Here, in my view, it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us bluntly, if you're going to approach the Quran as if it is a miracle worker, you know that uh, miracle grow things. I saw these uh, uh, commercials, yeah. where like you put something and then it miraculously, miraculously grows. Yeah. If you want to think that you're buying one of these miracle growers, yeah, well, the Quran doesn't work that way. Then Surah Al-Rad, it comes. Remember again, in our uh, consistent with our methodology that. Every surah came to speak to teach Muslims at the time and Muslims forever a critical message about God's objectives on earth. You're going to need to build a civilization, but it's not about, you know, lightning and thunder and, and, and dazzlements and, and overnight things and it's not about that. Think of something very simple. The Prophet ﷺ has captives of war. He says to them, those, those, a lot of the captives couldn't afford to buy their freedom. So he says to them, okay, teach a Muslim to read and write and you're free. Only someone whose intellect is the Quran like that would think that way. Because if, you know, think about it. You, one, you yourself can't read and write. Two, you're living in a state of siege. You're in Arabia and everyone wants to kill you. The Persians want to kill you. The Romans want to kill you. The Arabs want to kill you. Everyone wants to kill you. And what are you interested in? What are you concerned about? Teaching your friends to read and write. Now this friend could go to war tomorrow and get killed in battle. And all the reading and writing that he learned could avail him nothing. And the irony, could he could get killed by the same person who just taught him to read and write. But this is a man who's intellect was the Quran. He, he doesn't think like our idiotic leaders today in terms of cost and benefit, but in terms of values.
One, this, this remarkable, just this literal verse. Uh, 31. It's one of the most remarkable verses in the entire Quran. I've never read a tafsir that said anything interesting about it. But for me, I remember it, I couldn't sleep an entire night because of verse 31. It's like, oh my God, Allah says it, just tells us point blank. This is a new age in the history of humanity. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Are they unmuted? Yes, yeah. we are. Uh, you know, I, I um, when you're, when you have endless intellectual curiosity, so you read all types of things, including very strange things. So I was reading about a guy that I don't know what the apparently this guy makes money by uh, going on some websites I don't know what types of websites these are but he goes on websites and he gets paid tokens to hit himself so I guess like you you pay certain amounts of tokens and then he slaps himself. I don't know what else, but you know. And I was imagining constructing an argument to convince him that what he's doing is morally wrong. And it's very difficult. It's very difficult to construct an argument to convince someone like that that what he's doing is morally wrong. Uh, you know, as long as you have that logic of, well, someone benefits, someone loses, someone, you know, the, 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 the endless cycles of relativism and anyway very strange I never thought that there's anyone who would be willing to pay money to just see someone slap himself or punch himself or something those people are strange um, okay verse 31 The reference, um, let's see, study Quran. It says, um, and and those who disbelieve calamity will never cease to befall them because of what they have been wrought or alike, or alike close to their abode until God promises come. Most commentators say that this is a reference to. Um, um, 
that this is Allah telling the Meccans that to reflect upon the fact that they are in relative safety while there are constant calamities that fall before those around them. And then some take it to beyond the Meccan context to say that, you know, that Allah is telling, is, is telling human beings um, that that the, the nature of their existence, that every time a calamity before them, it's, it's a warning from Allah. Anyway, um, in case you're, you're, because a lot of people are not sure why the reference to calamity, uh, if you understand it in, as speaking to the Meccans, and then possibly a, 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 a reference to uh, Allah's constant sending of messages of warning that remind us of our own lack of independence, um, then it would not be an issue. Okay. 36, those who said that Surah Al-Rad is a Medinian Surah often cite 36 because of the reference to the Ahzab, um, which in the Medina period, we know what the Ahzab are. Uh, if Surah Al-Rad is a Meccan Surah, then 36 would, that reference to the Ahzab, when it says that some of the Ahzab deny parts of the revelation, then it would be a reference to Jewish and Christian communities outside of Mecca. Uh, that, and that would be the earliest reference in the Quran to the Ahzab. If Surah Al-Rad is Medinian, then we know that the Ahzab were the parties outside of Medina that had a very turbulent relationship with Muslims in Medina. Then we get, of course, 37 is the repeated reference of the Quran uh, to this being an Arabic Quran and that the purposeful choice of language as an instrument of the miraculousness of the Quran and if that that's hardly surprising if you know enough about the Arabic language. But the verse I will pause at is thirty-eight because of the discussion around thirty-eight. 
ولقد أرسلنا رسلا من قبلك وجعلنا لهم أزواجا وذرية وما كان, وما كان لرسول أن يأتي بآية إلا بإذن الله لكل أجل كتاب The previous prophets had wives uh, and a, a lineage um, the it is said that the that the reason or that the occasion or the the um, that it's not it's not clear whether it was an occasion for revelation or whether in fact it was a a debate that arose about this verse after its revelation but and again, this goes back to the Medinian Meccan period debate. Is that you get these reports that some Christians and Jews like the Islamophobes of today uh, criticized the Prophet for his multiple marriages. And they said that if he would be if he was a prophet that he would not have uh, married a number of times or married several women um, of course we know that this doesn't happen till the Medina period um, now it is possible that this verse was revealed in Mecca simply saying that all prophets were just like regular human beings going to the market so on and so forth and marrying and having children and then the debate about this verse or the criticism directed at the prophet that he had married more than one wife arose later that's definitely possible uh, of course what in in the classical sources Numerous Quranic commentators respond to this and say, by saying, well, these Christian and Jews who criticize the Prophet for marrying multiple wives ignore the fact that all the biblical prophets except Jesus uh, married, uh, I mean, Dawood was reported to have had a hundred wives, Suleiman was reported to have had 500 wives, although these are obviously biblical exaggerations, I, I doubt very much that they had that many wives. But that in the Bible itself, or the biblical tradition itself, polygamy was a, a well-established institution, and in fact, it is true that the first time that polygamy is restricted within a religious tradition is in the in the in the Islamic law. Um, just an interesting note about this particular verse. Um, okay, forty. Verse 41, let's see how they translated that one.
Have they not considered how we come upon the land, reducing it from its outlying regions? And God judges, none repeals God's judgment, and God is swift in reckoning. Um, أَلَمْ يَرُوا أَنَّ نَأْتِي الْأَرْضَ نُنْقُصُهَا مِنْ أَطْرَافِهَا This verse gave commentators a long pause because pre-modern commentators weren't sure what it meant. Uh, that we come to the earth and... How did they put it? Um, Yeah, reducing it from its outlying regions. And in traditional tafsir, they said, well, it must mean that have, haven't they considered the fact that more and more people are entering Islam? And so by more and more people entering Islam, then the number of non-believers is decreasing and it must mean that but of course that didn't fit well because you know if it if it meant to say that the number of non-muslims or number of unbelievers are decreasing it would have said that instead of we come to the earth and re reducing it from its outlying regions so, and many just said, well, we, we're not sure what it means. Um, the reason it's interesting is, is really for the, the, um, the, the people who wrote about the scientific miracles of the Quran, that, and, and again, I'm, that's not my field, so I don't feel comfortable talking about it, but just from what I've read, is that apparently, scientifically, that that's correct, that, the the landmass is constantly being reduced, and as more and more land go under the ocean, um, so a lot of the you know a lot, a lot of the people that write about the scientific miracles of the Quran that's one of the verses that they discuss. Um, so if you're interested. Check out, check out one of these sources. Maurice, the best is Maurice, and still after all these years, Maurice Mukai's book about science on the, in the Bible and the Quran. Uh, Maurice Mukai was a French scientist who converted to Islam. Um, I think the book is still in existence. Do, do any of you know? Yeah. It's still a really good book. Okay. And then Surat Arad comes to an end with promising that addressing the unbelievers themselves and saying that don't forget that God, that this earth belongs to God and that you plan and God plans. I want to say something about Makrul Ladina Min Qablim. 
فلله المكر جميعا this idea of مكر um, that we find in سورة الرعد and we find it in several other سور as well a lot of times that is translated as God is plotting and you plot and God is the best of plotters or you plan and God plans and God is the best of planners but makr doesn't in, in modern Arabic makr has the connotation of um, plotting something discreetly and stealthily or sneakily where you plot something so even if you say someone is makar it's not a it's not a positive thing it means someone is deceptive someone is tricky um but muck in classical Arabic or traditional Arabic or proper Arabic doesn't necessarily connote that type of plotting like strategic plotting or plotting in a in a battle or plotting in in politics or something like that but Muk is the, the 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 term itself. It's like saying you think you are in control, and God controls, and God is the best of controllers. It comes from from the origins of kar. That moving with direction moving with purpose, with objective. So you think you know where you're going and God knows where things are going and no one knows better than God. And that is then entirely consistent the way that Surah Al-Rad closes with its entire message in this whole notion of long-term nature of things, the long-term movement of things, the nature of growth and the nature of progress itself. And of course, the, the last verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say, you know, to the Prophet himself, because the, the don't worry about whether they believe you or not believe you. Ultimately, God is sufficient for your sense of certitude. And this, of course, extends well beyond the Prophet. Because if you rely, if you learn to get your sense of affirmation from God subhanahu wa ta'ala, from, from Allah directly, and which the Quran repeatedly, and then we'll see in a different surah, that the Quran underscores this, that your if your affirmation of your opinion of yourself relies on 
other human beings and you will be lost. In fact, the Quran, the Quran puts it, that you will be as lost as someone who is uh, uh, um, thrashing up and down because you're possessed by a devil. The picture that the Quran draws. That your sense of affirmation must come directly and only and exclusively from Allah. And if you know that, if you believe that what you're doing is what Allah wants, then you must stick to it. And that is critical to the entire message of Iran. Okay, so now I'll, I'll go back and summarize what Arad leaves us with. I just want to make sure I didn't forget anything before I do that. of if you if if it's in fact and which is likely that it was revealed right before the rahman a rahman itself takes the notion of duality and develops it even further and go back and listen to the the halqa to uh, Rahman, because that duality is critical to the whole notion of mizan and the whole notion of justice and understanding. But the the foundations are laid in a rod, and a rod, it is in in a. The way that I under, understand it and the way that I relate to it is in a very concrete and um, maybe even a bit childish way. Every time I sit down to make a decision to read or not to read, or to pray or not to pray, or to smile or not to smile, to say something kind or not say something kind. I am in fact reminded of a rod and I ask myself, what do I want to be my affirmative self and what do I want to be my zil, my shadow? If I read, the shadow is me not reading. If I don't read, the shadow is me reading. If I pray, the shadow is me not praying. If I don't pray, the shadow is me praying. 
if in everything, if you give charity, that's your affirmative self, and the shadow is not the charity, is not giving charity. If you don't give the charity, the shadow will be you giving the charity. And it's very simple. All is subject to God's sovereignty, yes. But what do I want to be the me, and what do I want to be the shadow? Put, again, quite bluntly, when I meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah presents me with the alternatives in the discourse of the Quran, the shadow, the dhil, wouldn't it be truly tragic if the dhil, the alternative, would have been much better than I am? If, if I find out in the hereafter that, you know what, Khalid, you could have been much better. You could have been much more pious, you could have been much more knowledgeable, you could have been much more kind, you could have been much more generous, you could have been much, much more this, much more that, but it's a shadow, it's a mirage, it's not the me. The me is a disappointment. Now, don't be the shadow. Or alternatively, sorry, don't be in a situation where the shadow of yourself is much better than who you are. Because that will be disastrous. And remember that it is not about the lightning, and it is not about the thunder. In fact, when life gives you thunder, you must steady your feet after it quiets down. It's normal to get scared of thunder. It's normal for your heart to miss a beat. But it, it's what happens after the thunder that counts. Are you going to run away? Are you going to fall apart? Are you going to crumble? Are you going to be a nervous mess? The lightning, although the Sufis see it as a lightning of enlightenment, I tend to, my relationship with Surah Ra'ad, I see lightning as fake light. What happens after the fake light? Okay, it you you got if a a a mirage of illumination, but can you sustain it into into can you nurse it into sustained insight? Because a lot of us have flashes of lightning. You know, we get a, we feel good for a moment. We get into a mood. We pray one day or one hour or one whatever. We pray very intensely. Or we do dua very well. Or we read Quran really well for a day or two or a week. And then we deflate. Flashes of lightning. 
Remember, it's not about the lightning, it's not about the thunder, and most of all, it's not about the froth. It is the sustained flow of goodness. The way that you are able, and Allah tells you in Surah Rad what you need for goodness. Don't say something and break it. Talk is cheap. Don't, you know, including talk to yourself. Don't tell yourself all a bunch of, you know, wonderful, great things. But then when it comes to action, be a complete shadow, a little. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Remember, Allah says, keep your covenant with Allah. You know, don't say, Allah, get me out of the situation and I will be X, Y, Z, and then you're not. Don't be, oh yeah, you know, I promise, or I will do this, or I'll do that, or, you know, but then you're not. Don't be among those who think that you are an island. Because you are commanded to connect what Allah has told you to connect. Meaning you exist anchored and connected to everything else in existence. You have obligations to the poor. You have obligations to your family. You have to obligations to friends. You have obligations to neighbors. You have obligations to your community. You have obligations to those less fortunate. You have obligations to those you work with. You have obligations. Be those who give rights to where it's due. And prayer and charity. And don't forget, repel bad with goodness. That These are the secret formulas for the water to flow and the fruit to grow. Short of that, your shadow will be better than you. The alternative will be better than you. And be among those this is one of the most critical lessons of Surah Al-Rad, and it lived in Islamic history as such, by the way. Whatever you do, if, you're, if you understand Allah's relationship to you and your relationship to Allah, you will be anchored by remembering Allah. All types of things in life can unsettle you. All types of things in life can make you lose perspective. All types of things can shake you. All thing, types of things can make you feel that you're whatever. But time and again, 
It is within only in the remembrance of the Lord that true tranquility and comfort comes. Sure, learn from the Sufis the, the type of meaningful dhikr that would teach you how to find comfort in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because it's not about bending your body and it's not about dhikr with your body. There's so many people who try to do dhikr and they say we don't feel anything. What's wrong? Well, it's because it's just muscles and blood and flesh that's moving. You're not, you're not thinking of gratitude. You're not thinking in terms of what you actually owe Allah. And beyond that, you're not thinking beyond yourself into the fact that you are, ex you are only a temporary phenomena that has a date with death from the moment that you come to be. And that the only lasting and permanent truth is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh, you want to understand Allah, study Allah's created Quran. Because the more you study Allah's created Quran, the more you understand what your Lord is. And bit by bit, you fall in love with the God who created all of that. Leave alone the other stages, you know, the fana, all of that stuff. The sitter and the fanan, these are. Okay, alhamdulillah. And that is Surah al -Rab. You now understand why I was so apprehensive about Surah al -Rab? There's a very heavy surah. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah, thank you again. Thank you so much. This was an incredible surah. It's so um, deep and there's so many different things to process that I think it's really hard to get a full, um, I don't know, especially on fasting brain, as I was saying, it's like hard to process everything. <laughs> but I actually, I think we're gonna have some really interesting discussions um, on, I know I have some good questions. So well, let me start in here though. Does anybody have any questions to kick us off? And happy birthday, Cheyenne, oh, Cheyenne's you. birthday. So it's apropos that he should start, start us off. Yay, maybe then I can ask too. <laughs> That's his birthday That's your birthday present? That's my okay. birthday gift. All right. Well, the, the, the first question is the question that I was going to ask you last week, and you remind, you told me to remember to ask. Uh, it was about verse 38, and verily we sent messengers before thee, and we appointed for them as wedge and Zuriyat wives and offspring, or as wedge and Zuriyat. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to ask you, in light of um, the, the, th the thematic points that you brought up in the surah, because unless I missed it, you kind of just offered the traditional understanding. Um, do you think that there's room to reinterpret this verse in the thematic understanding that you provided? Um, that perhaps, you know, the, the, the azwaj, again, is a, the, a question of duality. 
uh, or similar to the way that the water the, the water is you know impregnating the land in a way, and then the duriya, the offspring, then being the fruit that comes from that process. Um, that's the first question. Uh, and the second question is um, something strange that I noticed, and I'm wondering whether you've noticed it as well, and whether the tradition talks about it. Um, Surah 13, named Rad, verse 13, uses the word Rad. And mm. I don't think that it uses the word again in the Surah. And the way that it presents the, the lightning in verse 13 is in a more um, metaphysical and fantastical, kind of miraculous, it's a miraculous description of um, uh, the, the thunder and lightning doing tasbih of Allah and this kind of thing. Right. Uh, and it has a very potent and punching kind of attention-grabbing message. Whereas um, the reverse, you know, the, the I guess the mirror image, 13 to 31, if you like 1, 3 to 3, 1, you spoke about how the Qur'an is not there to produce a flashy lightning and thunder, miraculous signs type of thing, but rather it's more towards the parable of the water and this sort of thing. So. I was wondering whether this kind of proves your theory regarding the shadows uh, of like the mirror image opposite that um, usually what we take from we're stuck in the red herring of the, the lightning and the thunder and rather the point is get out of the verse 13 understanding of things and, and move towards verse 31 understanding that. Mm. Um, it, it is up to God. He could show his signs in this way if he wanted, but rather he's offering you a new way of thinking. Um, okay, well... Any way to paraphrase that? Uh, uh, well, the, the, fir the first question is about the the reference to uh, the um, Azwaj and the Dhuriya to the uh, Prophets and Shana is, is, is um, proposing an interesting idea. I mean, because the, the traditional Tafsir normally will just say that A point that is made repeatedly in the Quran that all the prophets were human and partook in human things. Um, and then the other point is the whether it's a response to uh, the possible criticism from uh, Jewish and Christian quarters that the prophet took multiple wives. Um, the, these are the two two points that you always read in the traditional tafsir. And so the Shaina is saying that well, perhaps the, the reference to the azwaj is consistent with the theme of duality and that um, uh, and that the zuriya are like the fruit, the offspring, 
um, and that's a really interesting idea. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I haven't, I, I don't believe I've ever read that point anywhere, but um, it would be, I think it's a really interesting point. Um, I mean, of course, it would be more esoteric, especially not uh, not the point about the Zoriya, but the point about the Azwaj. Uh, what would be the Azwaj of the prophets? Um, I thought maybe perhaps a student or an understudy. Yeah, you know, the process like understudies. Of you know, the not like the water is impregnating the land, or like yeah. the Quran is impregnating, in, you know, using this term. Yeah, the whole know. the whole notion of impregnation that would then bear fruit. I mean, it's really interesting, uh, and it would. I mean, definitely the the. Um, Especially when it comes to the Prophet Muhammad, uh, we know of the Islamic message through, if we imagine that that, that there was dualities in, in several, in, in, in many levels because he he had one by he had one to one relationships with so many people and those people then went on to shape our understanding of islam in such decisive ways and in extremely significant ways so i mean it i think it's a it's a very interesting point um The, um, the the second uh, remark was um, yeah the the uh, I think that is is a really important point because Can you paraphrase your... uh, the 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 way that thunder is mentioned in Yusabihu Radu Bihamdi. I mean, and there, there is an interesting uh, uh, sort of relationship in numbers that Cheyenne noticed. Um, third, the, the verse 13, 30, uh, ver, verse 13 versus verse 31, that's right. Um, and that, you know, it, this whole this whole idea that uh, the, if you if you're reading the the, the surah in a in, in a traditional way you you would be tempted to think that the the whole point of the surah is is the supplicating um, thunder but in fact, that's not the point of the surah. It, it is the the surah is not telling you about the thunder that supplicates 
and that's the main point of the surah. The main point of the surah is to tell you about what happens after the thunder that supplicates, or what beyond the thunder that supplicates. And Shayan was saying that this is consistent with the, the, the whole duality approach again, and that it, it <coughs> underscores that Surah Tarab is sort of telling us to look beyond the spectacular and and um, and superficial. And and then he's also drawing a, an interesting point about the numbering that it's verse 30, 13 and verse 31. Uh, I, you know, I, I wholeheartedly agree that it's, uh, although it became known as Surat Rad, um, and in traditional tafsir, you know, you get the, the, the um, None of, I mean, I already said that they're not that they're not authentic traditions. But you know, traditions about that the thunder um, uh, that there is an angel who's responsible for the thunder, and that the thunder is the roaring of the angel. Um, you, you find traditions like that. The traditions that say that the th the thunder activity is caused by uh, angels that sort of move the clouds and clash them together. Uh, you find in, in some traditional tefatir about, uh, they're, they're very preoccupied that uh, when there's thunder, then the, the, the um, Prophet upon hearing the thunder would utter the following dua and you know give you giving you the sense as if surah rad is about hearing the thunder and just simply remembering god's power and getting god's fear in your heart this is this is typical of the traditional tafsir but it's i think that largely misses the point it is not about just noticing God's power and and uh, you know putting the fear of God God in your heart um, it, it, it is in fact will it is about will beyond that uh, and that's sort of like just scratching the very superficial surface okay. <clears throat> thank you truth did you want Actually, before you do that, let me ask um, just to clarify what is the vicar for the surah? It's uh, verse 15. 15, okay. Henry, oh, yeah. does Henry have a question too? <laughs> <laughs> Except where is his, where's his chicken? Oh, yeah, he's asking about the chicken. Um, verse 11, uh, If the word, if the interpretation is traces, um, what, it, what would be the meaning of Yahfaluna? 
Can you repeat yeah. the purpose? Yeah, you see, if the word muakkabat means traces, then what does yahfazunahu mean amrillah? And this is, uh, this goes back to a um, partly a, a, a linguistic debate. Uh, if you, uh, I mean, the, the closest way to access it is um, in the way Muhammad Asad translates it. Do you, do you have the Muhammad Asad translation? Muhammadassus reads it as thinking that he has hosts of helpers, both such as can be perceived by him and such that as were are hidden from him, that would preserve him from whatever God may have willed. So, the the, the grammatical debate is whether it is saying that the muakabat are protecting someone with God's will or the muakabat one thinks that the muakabat are protecting one from God's will and the then the muakabat is do you believe that uh, it is your willpower that is, well, it could be an external force, but is it with your willpower or your decisions or your voluntary decisions or your previous decisions that can thwart God's will? يَحْفَظُونَهُ min أَمْرِ thwart God's will. Or, or, um, so basically, if then it's traces, it's like saying, well, my decisions can thwart God's will. Um, and what I've done in life can thwart God's will. I don't need to submit to God's will. And as this, of course, is, is the interpretation chosen by Ibn Abbas, most famously among the early generations. Um, Now, I, I do think, though, um, well, I don't think Mu'akabat means angels for, for many different reasons, but, and in part, the, the, the traditions telling us that their angels are, are not uh, reliable. 
but I um, I think that Muqabat and, and although I, I don't want to you know uh, over speak about this because it's still something that I'm I I think that the Muqabat uh, I'm very tempted to say that it is even beyond just traces. Um, and l let me put it uh, uh, this way, that, there, that in some of the Sufi-esque traditions, they, they talk about uh, those who put their trust in supernatural powers other than God, and uh, and especially at their time, those who would put their trust in um, constellations and constellations of stars and luck and fortune, and believe that these constellations. Uh, um, are beyond or even superior to the divine will. And of course the, the, the practice of uh, what do you call it? the people who would read the future based on huh? divination? divination type practices were very and I do think that the Mahkabat is not just traces but also um those who who start believing in 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 powers other than God, um, and think that these 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 powers are going to avail them anything, including, and this sort of became, is that there are people who believe in reason as if reason is God. Is a god in in in, in God's soul. like, like as if there is a, a god of reason, and that god of reason is supreme and superior, and can overcome all. Um, and um, if I had another lifetime, I would probably write a book called the God of Reason. We, and I think that. Is also among the Maqabah, sort of. When you say God of Reason, as opposed to God of creation. No, 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 no. I mean God of Reason. I mean, I don't mean God of Reason. I mean, like, like those who imagine that Reason is a God. Right, but it's basically like your own self, right? Yeah, you're worshiping I mean, yourself in yeah. a sense. I mean, you are, you are, because but, but they 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 have this blind trust in reason. And this is especially in the sciences and like among philosophers and, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, reason will answer all. And you find this a lot with the new atheists where, you know, there are a lot of things they can't answer, but they say, oh, it's okay, but, you know, we trust in science. We trust, science will eventually answer these questions. So although we can't answer them now, well, eventually science will trust them. Well, they're, they're worshiping another false god 
It's like another market. I requested I'd be allowed to ask two since my first one is not really a question. But okay, but I have one too. <laughs> Can you explain verse thirty-nine? Uh, she's very long and long-winded question is can you explain <laughs> verse 39 um, 39 uh, oh وَيَمْحُ اللَّهُ مَا يَشَاءُ وَيُثَبِّتُ وَعِنْدَهُ أُمُّ الْكِتَابِ so yeah so I think Chief is asking about that, that expression, Umm Kitab. Um, that Allah er erases whatever Allah wishes and, and affirms whatever Allah wants to affirm, and uh, Allah has the mother of the book. And um, the the mother of the book or Umm Kitab is there's a there you'll find a lot a lot of discussion about precisely what is Umm Kitab. Is Umm Kitab meaning means the secrets of the book, which would be an idiomatic expression. The the Umm Shay is the heart or the origin of something. So is it that God has the true meaning of the book or is it a reference to Allah al-Mahfuz or the um, preserved tablet? Preserved tablet. Uh, and is the preserved tablet Allah um, al-Mahfuz the source from from which all revelation comes that it which of course we have no access to and we don't uh, we don't know other than the the fact that Allah makes reference to Allah al-Mahfuz the preserved tablet and that Allah also makes reference to the preserved tablet in the context of the revelation given to Moses. And some have said that the preserved tablet, the Allah al-Mahfuz, are the Ten Commandments or the revelation to Moses, although that's a minority opinion. But the majority says that the Ten Commandments or the revelation to Moses came from the preserved tablets rather than being the preserved tablets themselves. Um, I tend to don't I don't think that the references in the Quran to Umm Kitab or to the Allah al-Mahfuz uh, are to any physical thing um it is a, a reference to, let's say, a symbolic construct. Um, that there are 
parts of the revelation that are unchanging, unconditional, non-contextual, non-historical, um, and we get a taste of this in in Surah Ar-Rad itself when it, when Allah talks about keeping Allah's covenant, honoring our uh, promises, yasuluna ma amar Allah bi an yusal, connecting what Allah ordered to be connected. These commandments that are unchanging in all the revelations and that are the heart of the divine revelation. They, they are the heart and soul of the divine revelation. Then we have the, the temporal laws, the legislation that the, the, the legislation sent to people at different times, in different places, under different circumstances. And I don't believe that th th these laws are part of the heart of the revelation. They are mutashabihat. They, they, their, their very function was to serve the goal towards a goal preserved in Ummik Kitab. So every law that every positive, specific positive commandment that of a, um, of a narrow legalistic nature, that basically based on the masalah, based on material interests, we, we look at what the higher moral principle that it serves was. What, what part of, what moral objective in Umm Kitab is it serving? Um, you know, some of the very, the, the whole, you know, some of the very fantastical things that you, you, um, you get, that al or Umm Kitab is a golden tablet in the heavens that, you know, from, or that it's a tablet written in gold water or gold, um, uh, written in gold ink or things like that. You know, I, I mean, you read some some very exaggerated things, and and a lot of it comes from the Qusas or from the Israelite tradition again, because a lot of these traditions are uh, Israelite traditions. Okay. Um, I, I want to ask you a question about the whole idea of shadows, and I know that we've also got a, a question from one of the interactive members. But um, you know, the, with all the things we've covered in different surahs, it feels like that you know we never have to feel alone because we have just so many things around us. Yeah. Um, but the idea of the shadow—if you could talk a little bit more about—I mean, this is not something that people talk about really in our tradition, or that. It seems like it's something that Muslims are aware of, but I know people talk about energy. Um, I mean, I would just love to know more about, like, when you talk about having a shadow, and you know, if you could just explain the idea when you say when you're good, your shadow is bad; when you're bad, your shadow is good. 
like when we know that is is sort of what's the bigger picture like is, is if we are understanding the shadow is that intended to um, you know encourage us obviously to you know claim more of the goodness and the light for us as opposed to our shadow right but can you talk about the energy and then also is that connected to like the aura you know that you talked about before the, just kind of um, how you put it all together and understand that the the, the okay the, the idea of I what there, there are levels to it okay so one level when the reference of the Quran to, to in Surah Rab specifically to the the law um, it it could be understood as a, a symbolic reference to the, the alternative of 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 every of every position you're in and what could have been right. Um, I think, however, that it is more than simply a um, a symbolic thing the the aura is not is not influenced by the alternative the aura is influenced by what you actually decide so in a sense the aura is a shadow in a sense but the aura is an energy field that surrounds you that is affected by your decisions and the way that your decisions has affected every other energy in the in in, in, in everything you come in contact with i mean if if you if you're causing damage to the energy of other things your aura darkens and becomes horrible if you are healing towards everything around you, your energy, your aura in, in, in turn improves. Uh, I think the, the aura, I mean, the aura is the same, you know, Allah may, gave us very unique DNA uh, fingerprints, uh, right? Allah gave us very unique fingerprints. Allah gave us very unique uh, the 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 um, our eyes. If you you know the scanners that read the eyes, they find that the eyes are very unique. Our aura are also similarly unique. The very logic of Allah's creation is that we we are just we express in the same. On the one hand, we are in so many ways like everyone else. But on the other hand, there is a uniqueness and individuality to all of us that is directly intended by the divine. And I think that uh, the aura is not just um, a result of the happenstance of energies. I think that it is in intentionally there. Now, 
uh, why? Because I also think that God gave human beings an innate ability to sense each other's energies, if only they would listen. You know, some people make you feel very uncomfortable. Uh, some people draw you in. And to a very large extent, it depends on who are you. And that, the when you know, we talk about hadith al-arwah, what, what we're really talking about is the, the, this, the, the way the auras speak to each other. Anyway, so, but these are not the... Um, in a sense, these you and if you called an aura ilum, it would be linguistically correct, but it is not what Surat Radis is talking about, or what I believe Surat Radis is talking about. Um, the real question in Surat Rad is: Are we, you know, in um, in uh, uh, I? Once read, um, they're they're all they're, they're in 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 the uh, spiritualism, pre-modern age spiritualism that, and you you find this in also in the Jewish tradition, in the Islamic tradition. They talk a lot what in became known in Italian sort of sometimes called the tupa, which is you know you create an energy field. Um, uh, that um, an energy field that is the your opposite, but the tulpa in in and in, in, in the all these uh, the uh, writings of the occult they're all they're always negative. They're never positive. I don't think the zilan is are necessarily always negative. I think it is. Um, the the image of the better you or the image of the alternative you depending on who you are um, there's sometimes I you ever the, the, it's um, how do I put this do you ever come do something wrong and you know and you feel in your heart I know myself I'm better than this and you can nearly visualize the better you I think that's the, the, the that or alternatively you are tempted to do something wrong and you can nearly see the naughty you that is being attracted to do something wrong, that's a little. It is in, it, something that you can visualize. Now, does it really exist? Who cares? The, the point is that you can visualize it and learn to see it and learn to respond to it. Whether it's the better you obey it or the the worse you and learn to run away from it and and that's what's significant um anyway okay
So, Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for the beautiful interpretations you provide us with. Could you please explain some more about what the third and fourth stages of prostration are about? Um, the dhikr asir and dhikr al ruh. Thank you. And what exactly is munajat? What is the difference between that and prayer? Oh. Um, okay, so just so I'll, I'll go in order because. Um, well, the zikr sir. The reason they they say they call it zikr sir is in in part because the munaja. Uh, it, no munaja can be done in public. Munaja is is always in secret. It what is, is munaja. It, it, I'll, I'll come to it. Okay. The dhikr sir is the heart of dhikr sir is the munaja. That, so that's one. And the munaja is 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 something that you between you and Allah. And the munaja is not a prayer that has a, a structure. The best way to understand the munaja it is like. Um, uh, um, communing with God in a very personal way. Speaking to God with a full open heart, but you understand because the dhikr sir comes after dhikr qalb. And dhikr qalb, you've gone through the process where you understand what your God is. So you've fallen in love with God. Because dhikr qalb is that you are, again, that you have reflected upon the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and reflected upon the attributes so that you have come to understand what Rahman and Rahim means, what Latif means, what Hay means, what Qayyum means, what, and and if you do that, your art, your heart opens up to the reality that the only beauty, the only true, immaculate, complete, perfect beauty is Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and if you're and if your heart is attracted to this beauty, then that's all you want. Um, now, so then the crusader which comes, and the munaja is 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 when you are convening, communing with Allah, and the best way to, to is like is basically now that you understand what Allah is. The most classic form of munaja, I mean, every munaja that I've read, I mean, I've never heard the munaja because the, you don't hear them, um, 
is a confessional of all the ways that you fall short. And a heartfelt plea to Allah to help you understand your shortcomings and to understand how to overcome them. And a, an expression of longing for the wholesomeness that Allah provides. A longing to be complete. Not to be perfect, to be complete. In, in other words, longing for Allah. Um, the the munajah is it, it doesn't have a formula. It it's when you when it's like um, if you ever had a heart to heart with someone and you felt all the veils melt between the two of you. It's very rare because most of the time when we talk to other people, we have veils. But if you've ever had an experience where you've actually removed all the veils with someone in, 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 in a, and, and veils fall with other human beings only for a single conversation and then they go up again. They're, they're never removed beyond just all the way. It just doesn't happen. Um, that, what you feel at that moment with that person, and we talk about a person, is that there are no barriers between you. It's as if you could literally be just one. Like you could, you could merge into each other. Um, you even think like, you know, why do I have, I have my body and you have yours? We could share one body. Um, the, and al-munajama Allah is that you feel that type of closeness where you, you, you don't see all the veils, all these, the, the walls that you put up uh, because you, for that, for the for the for at least the, the duration of the munajah, you truly internalize that no veils are effective before Allah, that you have no secrets, and because you have no secrets, you you talk to God about okay, so I have no secrets. You know all my pretenses. You know every time I have, you know, I I fool myself, I fool other people, I, I, you know, I, you, you've, you know all the layers of masks I, I put on. Um, so where do, where, where do we go from there? That's the, um, if, I mean, if, if I would describe what, what an actual experience with a munajah feels like. It feels like that. Um, 
was I think there was a the, the question. Oh yeah, dhikr al ruh is um, um, it's uh, it's imunaja uh, is full often of tears, confessionals. Uh, tell me what what to do. Help me. Uh, stop being such a fraud. Uh, I mean, speaking of a, what actually happened, you know, um, I I can't stand all the veneers I put in front of people. Uh, I, I can't stand my own lies, my own self-deceptions, I can't stand my lies, I can't stand, help me, that's, that's typically a manager. Dhikr al-Ruh is, um, a, 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 when you, when you've done enough of, in a, a sufficient number of munajas, plural for mun, tenaji, uh, that when you sit in the, you feel the bliss of divine presence. Uh, you often don't even feel the bo- your body, you don't feel the passage of time. Um, a lot of people, you know, <laughs> when they start doing dhikr, uh, they're, they're, they'll start doing dhikr. Uh, I'm smiling because just of how silly human beings are. You know, they'll start doing dhikr and then they're, they're just novices. They just started, literally. You know, they're, they're just doing dhikr maybe for the first time in their lives. And um, you know, they'll do it for a little bit and then they feel irritated and, oh, it's so boring, like, you know, time is passing so slowly and, you know, I thought we're supposed to feel like no time and weightless and a complete likeness of being and, and you know, we do the, we've been doing Zik now for two weeks or a month or six months or whatever and you know the clock passes as slowly as it ever passes and then you know you just smile and say okay okay you know don't worry about it which is <laughs> just, just not ready um it doesn't work that way uh the the point where you feel weightlessness and and you don't feel the passage of time uh it's it, it it takes a lot of dedication, a lot of commitment, a lot of um, self-effacement. Uh, most of all, it takes real determination. Not not because you want to feel cool. Not because you want to feel cool because you, you've had a, a, a cool experience, but because you truly ache for Allah. 
and unless you truly ache for Allah, it's, you know, don't even attempt that level of zikr. Thank you so much. Okay, we just have a couple minutes left, so we're leaving it for the last question. When is Aid? <laughs> right? Because we were talking here um, sort of half facetiously about Where do how, I know? Well, <laughs> we'll give you some inputs. Um, the Saudis think it's Thursday and everyone else thinks it's Wednesday, right? Just, oh, I think it's, I was just saying that. I no, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I will count the days on the calendar right now. Okay, wait. So, anyway, today is Tuesday. Today is Tuesday. So, tomorrow is 30 days of Ramadan, 30 days of fasting. When was the first day? The 14th? Tomorrow is the 30th day of fasting. Tomorrow is the 30th day of fasting. So, tomorrow we fast. Saudi. So, does anyone say it's tomorrow? No. Except the lunar calendar, right? Is what you were saying? Technically, today is the new, tonight's the new moon, so tomorrow the crescent will show. But I guess you still fast tomorrow because you fast until you see that. Fast tomorrow. The crescent shows signs. But mathematical equation, those who calculate the new moon mathematically say what? Wait. Say that it's tonight. Tomorrow is a day of fasting. Thursday is the first day of the month. The people who calculate the new moon. Say the it's new moon is right now. It begins in the evening. By, by astronomical calculation, yes. it says Thursday. Oh, so then Thursday is if it's by astronomical. Thursday. Okay. <laughs> it's there settled. You know. Does are you everyone doing aid on Thursday? It might be settled, but the civil war has begun. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you, John. So, and I'm I'm giving aid. I'm. Uh, uh, doing eight prayer on Thursday, so it has to be Thursday. Otherwise, I'm doing eight prayer on the wrong time. By yourself, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, inshallah, we will see you guys. Um, join us for Aid, um, Aid Khutbah and Prayer. Well, Tarawiyah um, today. Join us for Tarawiyah tonight, inshallah. And, and in about 45 minutes or so. Um, and Aid Mubarak.